Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. All right, so uh, we want to continue in our series, uh, Just One, and today we want to continue by talking about one moment, one moment. And if you've been here uh, with our church the last week or two, you'll know that We've been going through this Missions Month series called Just One because we really believe that in all the things that are happening throughout the world and through our lives, there's one life that we have to live. We only have a couple moments, just one moment that we have as an opportunity to be able to share our faith and say that, God, you know what? All the things that you've given to me, I want to be able to share that back to someone else who hasn't experienced that. So last week, we talked about just one faith. We talked about how as Christ's greatness is acclaimed, the gospel must be proclaimed. And everything comes from our understanding of the gospel. That's the crux of our faith. It's the cross and how he died and how he rose again for us. And so today we want to go into how do we now use the various moments in our lives to be able to trust and use God and experience God personally so that we can share it with others. So we want to go through Acts uh, chapter 16, verses 6 through 15. And then also 25 through 34. So you can turn your Bibles to there and uh, or open up your phone. Again, a reminder that the mobile app has notes uh, online and you can fill in the blank and follow along with the sermon. Uh, so the keep, keep your Bible there or keep your phone at that passage. And I just wanted to start off with a question for us this morning. Show of hands, I need some participation. How many of us, we wish we had more time? Everyone, right? Every one of us except for a couple people who are here falling asleep. Uh, every one of us wishes we had more time. But the thing is, all of us, we know that we can't get more time. You have the same amount of time regardless of who you are, what you're doing, where you live, what your major is. Right? It's not like biology students have more time than statistics students. Right? It doesn't work like that. It doesn't mean families have more time than single uh, people. We all have the same amount of time, but it really depends on how we use it and how we maximize the moments that God has given to us. And I was, uh, I was watching a couple of videos and I, and I was thinking about like, what makes a moment? What makes it special? What makes it impactful? And I was thinking about a moment as a short moment, a long moment. And for many of us, moments go by very, very quickly. If we think about 60 seconds of time, that's actually not a very long time. 60, a minute, it goes by so fast, right? Like, don't, don't raise your hand. How many of us, we snooze the alarm this morning and say, I don't want to get up. I don't want to come to church this morning. And then you snooze the alarm and then all of a sudden, boom, 15 minutes have gone by. And you're like, oh shoot, I'm late now. Oh, my ministry team members are messaging me. They're calling me. What's going on? If we think about it, a lot can happen in a moment. It goes by really quickly. A lot can happen in 60 seconds. And so I wanted to show a video of what are all the things that can happen in just 60 seconds. Of all the things that are going on in the world, what happens in a specific time frame in 60 seconds? And we'll watch this video together, all right? All right. How many of us we realize the value of a moment now, 60 seconds? I, I was wondering, if we eat a mil, uh, 11 million pounds of food, but we only poop out 1.5 million, what happens to the other 10 million pounds of food, right? Like, we wonder where it goes. Uh, 
It's really interesting, all the different things that happen in a very short moment in time. Just 60 seconds, all those things happen. And if we think about it, a lot of significant things can really happen in moments. Uh, a loved one can pass away. We can experience a wedding. Someone can get a terminal disease. You can get anxiety. A, a, a person could be born. There are so many different things that can happen with a short, within a short amount of time. And oftentimes, if we think about just the negative, it could seem very uh, demoralizing. But what are the other things that can happen that we saw even in the, the retreat video earlier? Someone could experience the joy of knowing Jesus Christ for the first time. Someone else could receive love and feel cared for by receiving a care package. Someone could be encouraged and feel just a sense of peace because someone prayed for them. There are so many thinking things that can happen in a moment. And, and the question for us this morning is, how can we experience more of these types of moments? Moments where we experience the love of God, the hope of God, the peace of God. And as we experience those things, how can we then create moments so that someone else can experience those things from God as well? And those are some things that we're really wanting to believe that God could use us. God could use moments in our lives so that someone else can experience the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's what Missions Month is all about. It's not so that how can we just go out to a faraway land and go do missions and go to this village and go to this orphanage and see all these orphans come to know Christ. That's great. And if some of you have done that, praise God. But there are moments every single day throughout our lives that we experience where God could use us to share his hope. And that was Paul's story. And that's why we want to look at this, this story, this passage in Acts of how God used different moments in Paul's life so that he can experience the gospel and so that he could also create moments so that other people can also experience the good news of Jesus Christ. So I want to share two things that we need personally for us to experience different moments with Christ so that we can share about him and his news. And the first point that I want to share about this morning is that it requires uncompromising obedience to Christ. We need uncompromising obedience to Christ for us to be able to utilize all the moments that God has for us. So let's read. Hopefully you've turned to Acts 16 by now. We're going to read verses 6 through 15. If you don't have a Bible, uh, please just turn to the person next to you and hopefully they'll share with you. Um, so let's read it together. So verse 6, it says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been, been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One of us, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after, she was baptized in her household as well. And she urged us, saying, 
If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. It's a little bit of a long passage, but a couple of things that we notice immediately in the first few verses as we talk about uncompromising obedience to Christ is that there were several opportunities for Paul either to obey or to disobey. There are a couple of different things that he had to choose or make decisions, pivots, in that story of his missionary journey where he had an option to either obey or disobey. And so I want to give us some context of where was Paul? What are all these places? And oftentimes when pastors read passages, they're like, Phrygia, Galatia. We were like, I don't know how to pronounce these things. So I want to give us a map. So do we have a laser pointer? Actually, can I get? So I want to share with us just a couple maps that show us where exactly was Paul. So before this passage happened, Paul had already gone on his first missionary journey. Paul is an apostle after Jesus Christ had already gone back to heaven. He was traveling around and he just really felt called by God to share the gospel to the Gentiles, the people who were not Jewish. So he traveled around to different places. And so the first um, map I wanted to show us was his first missionary journey uh, around just the area. So initially he started uh, in this area called Antioch. And he went through Cyprus and this area, which this is modern-day Turkey, all right? This, I think this area is Istanbul, and this side is Greece. And he went around to areas called Lystra and Derby, and then ended up going back to Antioch from where he was sent out. That was his first missionary journey. After he came back, he was preaching the word, he connected with some of the believers, he went back to Jerusalem, and then at some point he said, you know what? Let's go out and go on a second missionary journey because, yes, I've shared the gospel with these people, but there are so many more people who haven't heard the good news of Jesus Christ. So he embarked on a second missionary journey. He wanted to go further. And so this is now a map of the second missionary journey that he went on. And so you'll see he actually went much, much farther. And this is where we begin to see some of the places that Paul actually mentions in this passage. You'll notice he started in Jerusalem. He went back to Syrian Antioch, and he actually passes by places that he went to before. So that's where he was encouraging the believers of the churches he started in Lystra and Derby. And you'll see, we see Galatia here, Phrygia here, Mycia here, Bithynia here. And you'll notice that Paul goes through these areas and eventually ends up into Greece. And it's interesting because we realize it was Paul's desire to preach the gospel in all these areas. This area was called Asia Minor. So Turkey at that point in time was called Asia Minor. And we noticed that Paul's desire was to preach the gospel through that region. Paul was just a very, just impacted by the gospel. And because of that, he said, you know what? I want to share the gospel. But for some reason, when we look at that passage, we see that he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit. In fact, not just once, but twice. And in these moments of him being forbidden, we realize that an uncompromising uh, desire to obey God is so important. And there are two potential reasons for why Paul was forbidden. There are two potential reasons for why Paul was forbidden from going to those areas. The first reason, hypothetically, was that he was stubborn. It It possibly could have been because Paul was just a stubborn guy. He was so insistent in preaching in Asia or Bithynia But maybe it just wasn't his time or his purpose, right? It could have been like Paul's like, hey, let me go to this place in Asia, and I'm going to preach the gospel there, and then 
The Holy Spirit's like, no, Paul, don't go there. He's like, but I want to. And then Holy Spirit's like, no, I can't. So they go to Bithynia, and then the Holy Spirit's like, didn't I tell you, Paul? You're not supposed to go there. And Paul's like, for stubborn reasons or whatever, he just wants to go for whatever reason. He just feels so passionate about the gospel. And it's interesting that the, the writer doesn't give a reason for why Paul was forbidden. It doesn't tell us exactly how the Holy Spirit forbade Paul. It was like, I don't know, maybe he built a wall in front of Paul and Paul had to turn around like he couldn't go anymore or what it was. But it just says he wasn't allowed to. And, and for some of us, this might be the reason why we don't actually encounter moments where we see God use us for his purposes. Maybe for some of us, there's just a stubbornness in our hearts, uh, something that prevents us from really saying, you know what, God, I want to I obey you. And it's our stubbornness, our desire to have our own way, the, 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 the desire to say, you know what, I, I want it my way instead of your way, God. Those are going to kill any opportunity for us to be used by God. I think some of us, like over the past couple of weeks, maybe some of us, we've just gone into a rut. It's been hard. We feel disconnected with God. We, we're asking God, why aren't you answering my prayers? Why aren't you doing things in my life? It feels like there are no open doors for us. We're trying harder and harder. But nothing seems to be happening. And I'm wondering if maybe God is using these moments to say, hey, wake up! You're not obeying me. You're just trying to do your own thing. You're trying to go on your own path. And maybe that's why some of the things aren't working out for you. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 14, it says, Blessed are those, and let's read the yellow together, Blessed are those who fear to do wrong, but the stubborn are headed for serious trouble. Now, we don't believe in prosperity gospel. Nowhere does it say if you obey God, then like all these amazing things are going to happen in your life. doesn't mean like, oh, you obey God and you're going to win the lottery tomorrow. That's not what's going to happen. But if we're not obeying God, then Scripture is fairly clear that we're going to have trouble, that God is not going to be with us, that God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Where do we see God blessing those who are disobeying Him? I think maybe there are some of us in this room that there have been past experiences of God, past things that God has said, I want you to obey me in this, but we haven't been obedient. Past retreats, you've had conviction from that, conferences that you've been to. Moments that when you're in a heated argument with your spouse and you, and it was like so difficult and you're like crying and then finally you come to resolution, you're like, okay, I'm gonna, do this now and I'm going to learn this. But then you totally forget. Totally forget what it was that caused that argument and you go back to the same old thing over and over again. Or maybe a conflict with your LCG, with your life group leader, an exam that you took. Something that happened that didn't go your way and God was trying to teach you a lesson. But for whatever reason, just in the stubbornness of our hearts, we wanted to do our own thing. And no wonder that we don't see these moments that God wants to use us. No wonder we don't even see moments where God is just with us for ourselves. No wonder we feel far and distant from God. But that's only one of the two potential reasons for why Paul was forbidden for going in those places. 
Not only potentially was he stubborn, but the other cases seems much more innocent, is that he had the right intentions. It could have been very much that Paul just had the right intentions. Paul seemed to have the right intentions, seemed to have the right motives, and yet for whatever reason, God still called him to obey and and turn away from those areas. Nowhere in the Bible, in this passage, do we see why Paul wasn't allowed to preach there. There was nothing incorrect about his desire to share the gospel with people who didn't believe in it. But, but in this moment, the Holy Spirit was saying, no, you're not allowed to go and turn away and go back. And when we think about this, it's oftentimes really confusing, right? Because we're wondering, like, why, why if Paul is saying, I want to preach the gospel, I want to do this so someone can accept Christ, like, why would God prevent someone from doing that? Now, don't raise your hand. How many of us are like, are saying, you know what, God? Like, I, I want to go share with my classmates. Or I can't wait to go to my colleague and share my faith. And then that day, that moment when you're ready to share, something happens where you just can't. And you're like, God, why would you do that? I'm, I'm trying. I'm doing my best. Why would you, why would you do something like that? How many of us, we think that we have perfectly good intentions, but somewhere along the way, we get stuck in our faith and we wonder, God, what are you doing in my life? And that begs the next question is, how many of us, we equate good intentions with being in line with God's purposes? How many of us think that good intentions equals obedience? When in fact, actually, good intentions does not equate to obeying God. It doesn't equate to obedience at all. Just because your intention, your hope, your desire is something that seems good doesn't mean you're living in obedience to God. Let's look at another story that illustrates this point. King Saul, he was a king in the Old Testament. He was actually the first king appointed over the Israelite people, the Jews. God called him, he said, destroy your enemies. Destroy the Amalekites because they are detestable to God. And so Saul, he goes out, marches against the Amalekites, and he, he defeats them in battle. But what he does is he saves some of the cattle. He saves some of the plunder for himself and for his people. And, and we pick up the story in 1 Samuel 15, verses 13 to 15. It says, and Samuel, Samuel is now a prophet uh, of God, who is uh, just pretty much confronting Saul in that moment. He says, And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. So Saul right here, he's saying, I did, God, what you asked me to do. I defeated the Amalekites. And not only did I defeat them, but look, I saved some cattle because God wants us to sacrifice, right? And the more sacrifices, the better it is for God, and we're going to worship, and God is going to get all the glory, and all these things are going to be good. And you would think that Samuel would be so happy, but those of you who know the, the story, you know what happens next, and I'll read it for us. In the following verse in 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, let's read the yellow together. 
And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. To obey is better than sacrifice. Even though sacrifice is good, obedience is more important. This is probably the one defining moment of Saul's kingdom. This is the one moment, that pivotal change, where Saul went from a king who was, who was connected with God, who God used to defeat many enemies, to right after this moment, then, then the Holy Spirit left Saul. And from that point onward, then God would start to favor King David, who would take over Saul's position as king. And I'm wondering how many of us were bringing sacrifices to God, good intentions to God, thinking that this is what God wants, but really it's not an obedience to God. Some of us, I know, as being, being a part of the Covenant Life Group for the last, I think, four months or so, I know for many of us, family life is hard, especially with kids. And for some of us, we, we, we think that going on Sunday, coming to Life Group, it's like my sacrifice. I'm dragging my kids. They have to suffer through the building. No, I'm just kidding. The building box is awesome. Praise God. The kids love it, right? They love the building blocks, uh, children's church. But some of us, we, we think that way, right? As family, we're, I'm dragging my kids. I'm making that sacrifice for you, God. I'm doing this for you. But how many of us, we realize, you know what? God wants your obedience. How many of us were like realizing God wants us to learn to disciple our children? To be our children's, the, the, the teaching to the next generation. Instead of saying, okay, building blocks, they're going to do all the discipleship for my children. No, it's in our families, at our homes. We are the ones who are primarily one discipling our children, teaching them the ways of the Lord. Building blocks is a supplementary part of their discipleship. Children's church, it's a supplement. But as parents, we are responsible for raising up our kids in the ways of the Lord. Don't say, hey, God, I'm coming here as a sacrifice. Your your role, your job is to raise up your children. It's to be parents to them. And some of us are like, I don't know how to disciple my children. Then ask. We have some amazing covenant leaders who are discipling their children. And and they're just learning as well. And as they're helping, then ask and say, God, how can I learn to disciple my kids? How can I learn to grow my own faith, my own maturity, so that I can raise up the next generation in the ways of the Lord? Single adults. We've been going through this Work Matters series. We've been talking about giving. You've been seeing the budget updates and you're like, Lord, here's my sacrifice, my giving to you. I've done my duty. I've done my Christian duty. I gave. What if God is not so much wanting your sacrifice? What if he wants your heart of generosity? What if it's not so much that that little offering What if it's not just that 10% of your tithe of your paycheck? But what if he's like, no, I want you to learn to be generous. I want you to learn to give out of a cheerful heart because you realize everything has been given by God. And I want you to help to meet this budget, to be able to see where our church is at so that we can see more people experience the good news of Jesus Christ. So that we can have 
things in our church where people are experiencing God. Not because you're just giving this because it's your little sacrifice, because it's in your obedience to God. Because you're saying, God, I want to be part of what you're doing. Students, don't worry, you're still up. <laughs> or it could be single adults too. How many of us are like, I'm giving up my Friday night? Man, life group hangout, oh man, man, my leaders challenged me to go and Oh, I guess I have to. I could be hanging out with my friends. I could be studying for my exam, but I guess I'll just do it because I'm supposed to. And you walk in, you're like, I'm here. What do you want me to do? This is my sacrifice to you, God. Now what do you want from me? Why don't you see that as a worship to him, as your obedience to him? Say, God, it's not just this Friday hangout. It's not just this moment. It's not just life group I'm going to. But it's my obedience to you to say every single moment, every act of participating in church in life group is because I want to build up the community. It's because I want to see someone else experience the love of God through community. Even as Joanna was sharing in the, in earlier on, for such a time as this, if people can experience God through our life group, through our hangouts, through everything that we go through, can we stop seeing it as just a sacrifice that I have to be there in? but to see it as my obedience to you, God, because I want someone to experience God. When will we see these moments as obedience to Christ rather than a sacrifice? When will we see every single moment that we go through as obedience? Some of us, we need to come to the conclusion that our good intentions can lead us astray. That what we think is a sacrifice is really more selfishness. It's really something deep down inside, whether it's our insecurities, our own desires, or whatever else, that our intentions can actually lead us astray. Many of us, we don't really believe this, but you have to look into Scripture to really be convinced that really what you're on the surface level might be a good intention is really rotten on the inside. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, in the ESV, it says, and let's read it together, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Read it again. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can understand it? Do we really believe that our hearts are really desperately this sick? We're this sinful. We're this rotten to the core. That there's nothing good that comes out of us. Even our best intentions, even our most righteous acts are like filthy rags before God. Do you believe that? And if you believe that, then that means even your best intentions, you have to realize there might be some deeper sinful and selfish motivation behind why you're doing what you want to do. Some of us are like, oh, but I don't, I don't know what God's purpose is for me. I, I, I just have to go on my good intentions because otherwise, I, what else can I do? But I want to challenge some of us, even if we saw a vision, even if God told us explicitly, this is what I want you to do, we would not do it. Paul saw a Macedonian man, and for whatever reason, Paul's heart was at least soft enough that he would obey. But many of us, if, if, if God spoke to us clearly, I, I really highly doubt some of us would be like, yes, Lord, I want to do that. Like, if God revealed to you the person that you're going to marry in about five years, you'd be like, heck no. (laughs) 
And some of us were like, I, I, I don't, God, I don't, I don't want to do that because I don't want to do it just out of a need. Because I, I want to hear like this call, this voice from you. God, I don't, I don't want to do it because I'm just pressured because my life group leaders are saying I should do this. Because I don't want to just do it out of pressure. I want to be a, a genuine desire out of my best intentions for you. Back in um, 2012, there's an opportunity for me to go to Indonesia for missions. Some of us are like, why Indonesia? And, but we were reaching out to Indonesia, and praise God, we love Indonesia. We have a church out there. We're partnering with HMCC of Jakarta and Tangerang uh, to go to Papua, actually. And um, I think in the process of actually wanting to go to missions, I actually didn't want to go at all. <laughs> actually, I was like, God... Uh, I already went on missions, uh, community summer missions project. I had a great time, but now is my time. This was right as I was graduating. I was just about to start a full-time job, and I said, God, you know what? This is my summer to start working, to start getting ready for my job. And I was actually on leadership at that time. I was like, God, like I'm a leader, and so I, I need to focus on leading life group. And actually, like when when people go on for missions, someone's got to hold down the fort. So that's me, all right, me right here. God, I, I got to hold down the fort. And uh, I need to raise up disciples so that we can make sure the church is running well while all the people going on missions are gone. So that was kind of my mentality. But as I was talking with people, they were asking me, like, Whoa, like, why not go on missions? Like, what's hindering? What's holding you back? And I was sharing those things. And they just asked me, like, why don't you list out the pros and cons between going on missions versus not going on missions? I was listing out the pros and cons. And I realized, like, there were about, like, ten pros and, like, two cons. <laughs> And they're like, so what's hindering you from going on missions? Like, I just don't know. I just don't feel it. I haven't heard God. I've been praying, but I never, I didn't hear God's voice. And then, and then I was just like, God, I don't know. Like, I just, I just can't, yeah, I just don't know. And then as I was praying through it and I was just going through it, I was like, God, I don't want it to be because this person talked to me or this pressure or, you know, and I was like, God, I just, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to say? You know, I, I just want to do what's right. And then, a long story short, I ended up going on missions because I was just like, pros, cons, okay, let me get the pros. And then, like, I, I think I really lacked faith in making that decision. But as I was making that decision, I said, you know what, God? I realized a lot of some of my intentions, a lot of some of my, mo- my motives was more, like, convenience, was more selfishness, was more about, like, my plan for my future, for my career. And lo and behold, I went on this mission project and actually it was interesting because I think God really blessed the Papuan people through what we did. But actually that was one of the most transformative mission trips of my life. I feel like I went more, I got more transformed than the people in Papua got transformed, to be honest. Like I got so broken, but still put back together in a new way. I feel like I understood, I, I literally on that trip, I felt like I received Jesus Christ for the second time. It was like, hallelujah, Lord, I am, I am now saved again and I want to get baptized again, but not really. Right, But I was like, wow, God, that was one of the best decisions I ever made in my life. And I realized that if it was more about obedience rather than good intentions, rather than sacrifice, then I would have jumped on that a long time ago. And it wasn't because of the need. It wasn't because of people pressuring me. But it was saying, you know what, God, I just want to go and do something for you. And I think for many of us, when we think about making some of these decisions, choosing to obey or not. We, we, we spend so much time thinking about what is it for me? What is God speaking to me? And like, do I hear his voice? Rather than God, how can I worship you? How can I obey you? 
And because of that, we miss out on so many moments that God is trying to work in our lives to help us to see God is actually so good. I want to read this verse from William Booth uh, from the 1800s uh, from a collection of the general's letters. And he, he just, it was just really rebuking for me when, when I read this. He said, not called, did you say? Not heard the call, I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burden, agonize heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come there. And then look Christ in the face whose mercy you have professed to obey and tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to the world. I'm wondering how many of us, we're on the fence, we're like, God, I don't know if you want me to go on missions. I haven't heard you. I don't know if I'm called or I don't feel called. But I'm wondering if it's your rationalization of saying, God, I'm sacrificing, I'm making this sacrifice for you, I'm doing all this church stuff for you. When in fact, it's you don't really want to hear the call. You don't want to give up your life to obey Jesus Christ. You want to sacrifice a little bit, but then save a portion of, of it for yourself. When there are people dying out there who have never known Jesus Christ in their life, every moment that we have that is disobedience is another moment wasted where someone else will perish without knowing the gospel. When is it will we say, God, I want to obey you because Jesus Christ is that precious to me? And I think the amazing thing is right after this, we see Paul as he obeys the Lord. He makes a direct voyage to Philippi in Macedonia. He meets Lydia. She comes to know Christ. This is the beginning of the church in Philippi, which later then Paul writes a book about that church, praising them because they are faithful and they're generous. And we look and we realize if Paul did not obey because of his good intentions, of wanting to share the gospel in Asia, if he had never obeyed, then Lydia never would have come to know Christ. The church in Philippi would never have been started. And we wouldn't be reading the book of Philippians, which many, many of us are like so thankful for. Like We always quote that verse, right? Like, he who began a good work in you will carry it out completion. Lord, yes, that's me. It wouldn't have happened if Paul didn't obey. So I'm hoping we realize that our job, our responsibility is to obey. It's God's job to save. Our responsibility, our job is to obey. It's God's job to save. And he will use us as we obey to save some people that we've never met before. Let's make it our commitment to obey Christ. So that's the first thing that we need is uncompromising obedience to Christ. And the second point, we'll finish a little bit shorter, is unceasing intimacy with God. Not only do we need uncompromising obedience to Christ, but we need unceasing intimacy with God. Let's read the rest of this passage, verses 25 to 34. 
So it's about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword, was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all to all who were in his house. And then he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house, set food before them. And he rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. I think some of us, we've read this passage before, and, and, and it's a fairly well-known passage of Paul being able to witness to this jailer. And for those of us, and, and we don't remember, but in verse 16 to 24, how he gets into this situation is that first, Paul casted out a demon from a slave girl who was used by her master to make money by predicting fortune. So she would predict a fortune because there was a demon inside of her, and then the master would get paid. So because the demon's gone and he can't make any more money, that's why Paul and his companions were then thrown into prison, because the master was really upset. So in starting in verse 25 in this passage, we see Paul and Silas, they're thrown and locked up in prison, in jail. And one thing that's really interesting is that about midnight, the thing that's written about them, the most significant thing, is that we notice Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns in prison. And, and it's not just like quiet singing. Like some of us, like we like to sing in the shower, right? And then you, your roommates, like they hear you and record you on Instagram and things like that. Please don't do that. It's kind of embarrassing. Um, we're like kind of like, as soon as we know that someone's listening to us while we sing in the shower, we all automatically stop like, oh, waymaker, miracle worker. You're like, he's a waymaker. You know, you're like, I don't know. Like kind of a waymaker, kind of miracle. But I don't, yeah. you know, they're not just like singing like the kind of, they're like belting it out. Right? It says, in the prison, the prisoners were listening to them. So they heard everything. They heard the songs. They heard the prayers. Paul was declaring it out. And I was thinking about, like, that's not what I would do if I was a prayer. I'll be freaking out. I'll be like, oh my God, what's going on? I'll be like, how do I get out? How do I get out? How do I get out? And it's interesting, like, when you're in a difficult situation, it's really telling what the first thing or what your reflex or response is. You know, it's so interesting, like, every time disasters happen these days or there's a big commotion or news, what are people's first response? What do they do? You pull out your phone and start recording. Like, Instagram, for the gram, right? This is live news, it's breaking. And that's our first response. It's not like prayer, it's not worship. It's like, Lord, how help the situation. Would you bless the people? It's like, usually it's something that we're so used to, that's habitual. And so for some people, it's Instagram. For many of us, it's, we get discouraged. Many of us, we get fatalistic. Some of us, we get fearful. We get worried. We get anxious. We want to give up. And it's in these moments of adversity and confusion, difficulty, that reveals the depth of our intimacy with God. It's really telling what our intimacy with God is like. How many of us, we've taken a moment where you're discouraged, where you're fearful, where you're tired, where you want to give up, and those are the prime moments that you've shared your faith with someone else? 
I would say none of us. When we're not doing well, sharing our faith is like the last thing that we want to do. You're like, oh, I, I'm freaking out. Like, if I'm supposed to do this, why, why would I think about sharing my faith with my colleague there? I'm freaking out right now about this project and how it's not going well. Or if my kids are upset, the last thing I want to do is tell them how much God loves them. It's more about just getting them to quiet down and giving an iPad to them so that they are just glued and they don't do anything else. Those of us who are students, it's like freaking out while we have exams. The last thing you want to do is share your faith. You're like, I don't want anything to do with life group right now. Get me away. Get behind me, Satan. You're preventing me from studying. That's how important our intimacy with God is. If we're not intimate with God, then how is it that we're going to share our faith? How is it that we're going to experience God and say, you know what, God? You're so good that, man, everything else is going to be different. I think for me, I've been struggling, and, and I think I've shared in previous messages that work has been so hard, and I've had such a bad attitude to work. But for whatever reason, this past weekend, last weekend, I was really convicted just to say, you know what, God, I need to be serious about spending time with you. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to sleep early, and I'm going to sleep by, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to sleep by 1230, and I'm going to wake up uh, an hour early for work, hour early before normally when I wake up so I could spend time with God. And I was like, hour early? There's no, I was like doubting myself, like there's no way it's going to happen. But like, praise God, I, I did the first day. And you know, it was like the most incredible first day that I have spent with God in a long time. I was like, wow, there's so many things that I haven't experienced or I haven't felt the presence of God like this in so long that it just made me excited. And so then the next night, I was like looking forward to waking up early. It was weird. It was a really weird feeling. I was looking forward to waking up instead of like dreading that day, instead of dreading to go to work. I was looking forward to it, to spend time with God in the morning. And it was just really interesting how the rest of the week, my perspective just totally changed. And I knew my perspective changed because my wife told me like, you haven't been complaining about work as much to me. I was like, that must be God. It must be the Holy Spirit. There's no other way my perspective could change. And I realized, like, wow, my intimacy with God really does make a difference in how I view work and how I view my boss and how I view my colleagues and being able to share. And I was thinking about this, the USC situation that happened just a couple days ago and just how there was such an uproar. And, and I was thinking as I was praying, and, and, and I just, I don't know, for whatever reason, just there was a burden to pray and to say, God, I pray that more people will come to know Christ even through this situation. Because I realized, you know what, I heard their news reports that he was actually a believer, a Christian. So I was just very thankful and grateful that uh, we believe that now he's in heaven with God. But even if we didn't know that, what was our first reaction? I think it's really exposing. Was it anger? Was it disappointment? Was it fatalisticness? Was it discouragement? Was it wanting to give up? Or was your first reaction to say, Lord, heaven, God of the heavens, God of the universe, would you intervene so that more people can experience the love of Jesus Christ? If there's anyone else that will pass away again, that they will know Jesus Christ. How many of us, that was our first thought? Or was your first thought anything else? I'm wondering, is our intimacy with Christ so deep that our first thing is to say, God, I want to know, I want every single person to know through everything that's going on in the city for them to know Jesus Christ. 
Or is it something that's more self-focused, self-centered, we feel like it's unjust or all these kind of things, when really because we know the love of God, then we think, you know what, God? Keep doing your work and use me as your vessel to share with someone who could be that next person, my, my colleague who could be that next person, my classmate who could be that next person. What is the result of a demonstrated intimacy with God? We see it in Paul's life. If we look at this passage, the jailer woke up because of the earthquake. He drew his sword to kill himself. Paul shouts out. He says, we're all here. Don't kill yourself. And the jailer then asks, what must I do to be saved? Wouldn't it be so easy if we walked around and people would just come up to us and say, hey, Frank, what must I be do? What must I do to be saved? Really? Like, oh, great! I'm so glad you asked. Here we go. I mean, that would be so easy, right? Wouldn't it be like so simple? We just walk around and people just come walk up and say, "Okay, I'll share the gospel with you." My question is: Do people see your intimacy with God so much so that in every moment of your life that they will come up to you and ask you, "Why is it that you live so differently than the rest of the world?" Do we live lives like that? Where people will come up and ask, who is the God that you serve? Who is the God that you live for? Why is it that you have the joy, the hope, the peace, the tenacity, the desire, the willingness to serve and to love others, the selflessness? Where does it come from? Think about some of these questions. Why didn't Paul run away? Peter, earlier in the book of Acts, when the same thing happened, he was in jail and something happened and the Holy Spirit let him out. Why didn't Paul run out of jail? Doors were open. My other question was, how did Paul know the jailer was about to kill himself? I don't know, maybe the sword was really noisy. And he knew, I'm going to kill myself if no one's here. Maybe Paul was like, then, there. But it was totally dark. There was no like, hey, Google, turn on the lights, right? It wasn't like that. You probably had gas lamps that you had to light. But in that moment, in an earthquake, while he was in prison, while he was singing and praising God, he was so not focused on himself. He was so intimate with God that somehow he was not leaving the jail and he was staying there. He knew the jailer had pulled out his sword to start and kill himself. And he said, do not... Because we are all here. My question is, what does it take for someone to be that intimate with God? To think about God, to not think about themselves that much. To be able to say, you know what, God, I'm going to live for you in everything. And my intimacy will be so, so visible to people that they, will can't, they can't help but ask, who is it that you serve? I really believe Paul, he believed this with all his might in Romans 8, 38 to 39. He said, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If, if all of us sitting in this room, we believe that 100% with our lives, and we're intimate with God, and because we believe that God. God's love, we can never be separated from us. Though every single day we're intimate with Him. That I'm wondering if so many people come up to us 
when they're struggling, when they're burdened, when they're broken, when they see everything happening in Hong Kong, they will, they will be like, what, what causes you to live so differently than the rest of us? No wonder the jailer asked Paul that question, what must I do to be saved? No wonder. Because his intimacy with Christ was that unceasing. And so in the future, when, when news breaks out about something else that happens in Hong Kong because of the protests, when, when your kid acts up in public and you get so frustrated, when your boss gives you a ton of work and you still have life group and you still have all these other things to prepare, when you have exams coming up the next day but you have a life group hangout or you have life group, what is your attitude going to be? What is your intimacy going to say? And what is that going to show about the God that you serve? I love this quote by John MacArthur. He says, You are the only Bible some unbelievers will ever read. And your life is under scrutiny every day. Every single day. Every moment. Every message you send. Every, every assignment that you complete. Every project that you work on. Every, every word that you speak with your family. Every single day your life is under scrutiny. And what do others learn from you? Do they see an accurate picture of your God? Simple question. Do they see an accurate picture of your God? And I'm praying and hoping that people in our lives, every single moment of our lives, will see the God who died on the cross, who rose again from the grave, who is now sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. They will see that God that we serve. Because he's always with us. That is the good news, that he's always with us. It's not like we have to somehow work hard to get our intimacy with Christ. It's he's always intimate with us already. He's always with us already. And not only is he intimate with us, but we're going to be able to do incredible things as we're connected with him. And that was Jesus, his example and his promise. In John 14, verses 10 to 12, in the NIV it says, Don't you believe that I am in the Father, that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority. He was obeying God. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. He was intimate with God. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the good news. Not that we were so obedient, not that we were so intimate, but that Jesus was the one who was the most intimate and the the most obedient to God. He obeyed by going to the cross. He was intimate by praying, saying, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And he obeyed so that we could have a chance at life. He obeyed that so we could have an opportunity to have new life, to have new hope, to have new joy. He rose again so that we could have power, so that we can't just sit here on our own and do our own Christian thing in our own Christian bubble. But so that we can see the hope that we have, the joy that we have, is so that so many other people can experience that same hope and that same joy. And that we will do even greater things than these that we will share the gospel to even more people than Jesus did because of what he has done. 
And I'm praying that in everything, we will maximize every moment that we have, every opportunity that we have, so that God can be exalted, so that more people can see how good He is. I'm praying that many people will come to know Christ, even this month. I don't know why, but just as we're praying, I'm believing that through our outreaches and through things that are coming up, that God is going to use us in those moments to bring glory to Him. So that's why I want to close out with the one thing. The one thing is to maximize every moment for Christ. We must move forward in our maturity in Christ. To maximize every moment for Christ, we must move forward in our maturity in Christ. Our maturity is our obedience and our intimacy with Him. I want to give us a couple of next steps for us just to make it more practical. The first, start examining your intentions. Start examining your intentions. I think for many of us, and, and I know some of us, you know, we always get, we always feel this tension. We feel like a little attacked or, or defensive when leaders or people in the church bring this up. But really examine your intentions for why you do what it is that you do. The reason why we as leaders challenge you to think through, the reason why we ask the question why is because we want to help you get to the motivational level of where you're at. If you don't get to the motivational level, then you might be going on your own path. You might not be going in line with what God is asking you to do. So spend some time re-examining. Why do you want to go on exchange? Why do you want to get that internship? Why do you want to join Salt Community? Why do you want to do LCG? Why do you want to participate? Why do you want to do this outreach? Why do you want to do what you want to do? It's not just church stuff. Why do you want to find a new job? Why do you want to... Do this with your family. Why do you want to go travel? All these things, there are different intentions that we have that unless we examine it, that we might really be disobeying God in the long run. The second thing is set a time to develop your intimacy with Christ. Set a time. So many of us, we've, we've heard so many sermons, and, uh, and this is the, the, the difficult thing about preaching. Every single next step is kind of like some, some permutation of read the Bible, pray, spend time with God, reflect, obey God. It's not, nothing new. So many of us were like, yes, I want to obey God. I want to be intimate with Christ. But we never do it. Actually set a time. Message your LCG right now. Say, this is the time that I want to spend time with God this week on a day-to-day basis. Just do it right now. Message your LCG. Message your life group leader. Message someone else who will keep you accountable this week. Message your spouse. Tell your kids. Parents, tell your kids. Your kids will keep you honest. Mom, Dad, aren't you supposed to be praying right now? (laughs) No, honey. They will keep you honest. They will keep you accountable. Lastly, seize every moment to share your faith. Seize every moment. Think, just think through your whole day, your, your, your working schedule. When is it that I'm going to be interacting with this colleague? When am I going to see this classmate? When am I going to have dinner with that friend? When am I going to be spending time with that other family who my kids love to go to school with? Find those moments. Seize those moments. Don't let them go, just slip out of your hand. But say, God, I want to obey you. I want to be intimate with you. And I want to take every single one of those moments so that you can use me to be a witness for the gospel. And I know many of us, our life groups are planning various outreaches for the end of this month. Pray for that. Seize those moments. And you might have some friends that you're wanting to invite into that outreach. Pray for them. And don't be like, God, 
I'm going to pray so that I'm going to invite them the day before, and then they're going to come to the outreach the next day because they're not going to have anything to do with their lives. No, you want to find moments, even now, this week, to invite them. To say, hey, uh, Frank, we're going to do this outreach. I want you to join, and I think you'll have a great time. Be a little smoother than that. But start now. Pray now. Ask God for opportunities so that you can share your faith. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.